Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. Thank you for joining me today. We have a very interesting and, for me, exciting interview coming up. For years, I've been talking to you about the overweight and obesity epidemic that is in our country. Two out of every three Americans, according to the data that I've been getting, are suffering from overweight or obesity. We'll find out from our expert today, Dr. Rebecca Poole, whether my data is accurate. I've also been told that one out of three children will suffer from diabetes sometime in their lifetime. We'll find out more about the accuracy of that data. My own interest in the area of obesity and overweight began when I was in my early 20s in graduate school, and I was, I was subsisting on chicken gizzards and homemade beer living in the woods of New Hampshire while going to graduate school. Uh, my income was $150 a month, so chicken gizzards at 19 cents a pound and homemade beer was just about all I thought I could afford and probably all I could afford. My weight went up from 200 pounds to 290 pounds, a gain of almost 50%. Interestingly enough, my engineer and dear friend Mike Delora sitting right next to me, who now is, weighs 160 pounds, tells me that there was a time in his life when he weighed 240 pounds, also 50% more than he weighs now. So in addition to my own personal involvement with overweight and obesity, I also have members of my immediate family who suffer, who suffer presently from being overweight and or obese, uh, including my own brother, uh, one of my daughters, uh, the mother of one of my daughters, and on and on. It's, it's, a, it's a, an epidemic which is touching perhaps almost every, if not every family in the United States at this point. In my own case, I put myself on a plan to work on the weight and I also went into psychotherapy and I was able to lose the weight and to maintain it uh, to this day, that's many decades ago. And it actually led to my study uh, further in graduate school of addictions and I went on to become an addictions uh, expert treating not just overweight people, but also cocaine, heroin, alcohol, and so on. So, they're, and they're all connected for me. That's on the personal and on the professional level. So it hit both my family, not hit, but both my, my family and I were both involved with this. We've, both su we've, all, we've suffered from it, and I've also professionally worked with it for my entire career. I've brought it to you over and over again, partly because of my own personal involvement, but mostly, if I may, because two-thirds of the country suffering from anything is, is, is pardon the expression, huge. I mean, if two-thirds of the country had a common cold, we would be concerned. And yet, what are we doing about it? What does it mean? What is, what is 
what are the people who are suffering, the two-thirds, what are they saying to us? What is this symptom saying to us? And how are they being treated by the rest of us? That, those are some of the, of the issues and questions that Dr. Rebecca Poole has dedicated her career to. Dr. Rebecca Poole is Director of Research and Weight Stigma Initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, where she is also a senior research scientist. Dr. Poole is responsible for identifying and coordinating research and policy efforts aimed at reducing weight bias. What are policy efforts? Uh, policy efforts, w which we'll discuss today, are efforts by government to do something. Did you know that government is considering taking children away from certain families because they're considering that allowing the children to get so obese is a form of child abuse. How do you all feel about government taking children away from the family? Would this be the same as taking a child away who the parents are allowing to use cocaine, heroin, or alcohol? Is it similar? Is it not? How do you all feel about that? Well, that's an example of a policy effort. A policy effort is also where government changes the food that children are eating in schools, which uh, Michelle Obama is presently doing. So Dr. Poole is involved with these policy efforts. She received her BA in psychology from Queen's University in Ontario and her master's and PhD in clinical psychology from Yale University. Her clinical training at the Yale Center for Eating and Weight Disorders emphasized treating patients with anorexia nervosa, bulimia, you know, that's a binge eating disorder, and obesity. She completed her clinical internship in clinical health psychology at the VA healthcare system, and she also had postdoctoral experience at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Poole has been studying weight bias for over a decade and has published a range of experimental studies, population-based studies, review papers, and chapters on this topic. I could go on and on. She, I'll just uh, point out that she serves on the Council of the Obesity so Society and is an editor of the book Weight Bias, Nature, Extent, and Remedies. For those of you interested, that's Guilford Press, 2005. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dr. Poole. Good morning. Thanks for having me. May I call you Rebecca? Absolutely. Please call me Richard. Um, where shall we begin? One of the emphasis of your research has been on the stigma of obesity. What does that mean, the stigma of obesity? Well, very generally, when we talk about obesity stigma, we're talking about negative societal attitudes and stereotypes towards people who are obese. And these stereotypes give way to stigma, prejudice, and even overt forms of discrimination. And what we see is that this is a very common and prevalent problem for people who are experiencing obesity. When we look at um, how common this form of discrimination is compared to other forms of discrimination related to race or gender or age, things like that, we see that this is actually a very common problem. It has increased by 66% over the past decade and is actually now right on par with rates of racial discrimination among women. So many people are experiencing discrimination because of their size. Re Rebecca, who's discriminating against the overweight people? I mean, if the overweight people are two to one outnumbering 
the non-overweight people, is it that the power of the non-overweight people is so great that they can discriminate against them? How does this work? Well, there are really two answers to that question. The first is that we know that people experience weight discrimination in virtually every domain of daily life. We see it very commonly in employment settings where employers are prejudiced against their obese employees. How so? How so, Rebecca? Well, we see this at virtually every stage of the employment process, from getting hired to getting fired. So we know that uh, overweight applicants, for example, are much less likely to get hired for jobs than thinner applicants, even with identical qualifications, and in some cases, even when they have better qualifications than a thinner individual. So in other words, even though there are many questions that we're not allowed to ask someone in order to keep the playing field level, we're not allowed to ask certain questions of interviewees. Obviously, you can't hide the fact that you're overweight or obese, just like you can't hide the fact if your skin is a different color. That's exactly right. This is a very visible stigma. So unlike other forms of stigma that um, are not visible related to things like addiction or our other stigmatized groups, uh, for example, those with AIDS or, or HIV, you know, obesity is a very visible stigma. And, and so we see this discrimination occurring at the hiring level. We also see it, though, once they get hired. Um, obese women earn about 6% less in terms of their salary compared to thinner women for exactly the same work performed. Obese men earn about 3% less. And we also see that they're more likely to be denied promotions because of their weight, and they're also more likely to be terminated from their job because of their weight. So there really are multiple um, stages in one's employment career where people who are obese are very vulnerable to discrimination. Do, do we have an understanding of what is behind the employment related and the advancement in employment-related discrimination? What are the, what's the thought process or the conceptualization that leads to this kind of discrimination? Well, what we see are the same weight-based stereotypes in all different settings of society. So we're, whether we're talking about employment or health care or educational institutions, which are all places where discrimination occurs, the same weight-based stereotypes are really at the root of this discrimination. And these are stereotypes that obese individuals are lazy, uh, lacking in discipline or willpower, um, that they're less intelligent, that they're sloppy, the list goes on and on. You mean and just the, the old-fashioned street stuff that, 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 uh, you know, that goes back to childhood, which is just silly stuff, like the, if you're fat, you're lazy, it really is set into the cultural mindset? These attitudes are so ingrained in our society, and part of that is because of the approach that our culture has taken to the understanding and and treatment of obesity. And that is that uh, there is this perception that obesity is simply an issue of personal responsibility, um, when in fact it's a much more complex picture. And what happens when we emphasize personal willpower as the main reason that people become obese is that there is a tremendous amount of blame towards individuals who um, are not able to lose weight. And that blame is associated with stereotypes of being lazy and lacking in discipline, etc. So this is the exact same kind of prejudice that my patients who suffer from alcoholism or cocaine addiction face, which is a kind of feeling that 
It's your responsibility. You can do something about it. And if you don't do something about it, you're to be blamed. That is exactly right. And, you know, what's interesting is that when we look at research on different ways to reduce this form of stigma, we find that when people believe that a person's obesity is a result of factors outside of their control, that they're much more likely to express more positive attitudes towards them. But when they believe that their obesity is simply a result of laziness or not trying hard enough or personal factors like that, we see that weight bias becomes worse. And so this whole emphasis on personal responsibility and blame is really at the core of these negative stereotypes. Well, it's a very tricky issue because on the one hand, there is a certain amount of personal responsibility involved, isn't there? Well, what we know is that personal behavior is certainly part of the picture. We can't ignore that. But it is one piece of a much more complex puzzle. And that is a message that that we don't see getting disseminated in the public. You know, what we have are billion-dollar diet industries that say, you know, you can have whatever body you want, essentially. Just try this pill. Just try this plan. You can have flat abs in six weeks. That's kind of the message that we see. But what we know from science is that this is much more complex, that there is a very um, complex interaction of biological, genetic, environmental, social factors, all of which um, are really outside of an individual's control that contribute a lot to the obesity epidemic that we have today. What we did to remove the stigma that was being placed on what we call drug addicts or chemically dependent people, uh, that same stigma, is that we got the alcoholism and drug addiction classified as an illness. When, we, when it became an illness rather than a condition, it was easier for both the patients and for their families to not stigmatize the person because, you know, if you're suffering from an illness, you, you don't have that same kind of, uh, of a moral injunction against you as being a bad person. Now you've gone from being a bad person to being a sick person. Do you think there's something to be said for classifying uh, overweight and obesity clearly as an illness? And is it classified as an illness? Where Cur- is it? Currently it's not, but I do think that there is credibility in, in doing that. And What we know is that there are discussions going on in a number of professional obesity organizations who would really like to see obesity um, classified and defined as a disease for the very same reasons that you've just mentioned as well. Um, And this has implications for medical treatment as well as social attitudes. And so it it certainly could be a way to uh, reduce stigma. It's almost inconceivable to me that the DSM... Uh, For you listeners, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that we've talked about that's used for diagnoses uh, universally around the country, that it doesn't consider a person who's 100 pounds overweight to be suffering from an illness. If if it may not be a, a physical or it may not be purely psychological, it's obviously both, but it, what is it if it's not an illness if you're 100 pounds overweight? Well, and I think for many people, too, it it can be a very chronic illness. And so whether or not these kinds of classifications emerge will be really interesting to see because they do have um, implications for public policy as well. But getting back to the issue of how much each of us is responsible for our overweight and obesity and how much there are other factors, please tell us some of the other factors that you believe are, are creating this epidemic. 
Well, one of the things that has changed in the past 50 years is our social environment. And this is a time period during which obesity rates have skyrocketed. What has changed during this time is not our genes. Our genes have stayed the same, but our environment has changed dramatically. The prices of calorie-dense food and beverages have decreased considerably in contrast to the increasing prices of things like fresh fruits and vegetables. We also see... um, billions of dollars being invested um, to really market unhealthy foods to children by the food industry. And we have these unhealthy foods um, available 24 hours a day, accessible, um, but we don't see the same thing happening with healthy foods. And, you know, we really couldn't have done a better job in creating an environment to promote obesity. And so what, what happens when we have this environment is it makes um, healthy behavior, much more difficult. Right now, unhealthy options are the default. They are the default around us, whether they are in our workplace, in our schools. And what we need to do is, is shift that so that um, it's, the default option becomes the healthier behaviors that are easier for people to engage in. So that's one thing that, that's important to recognize. The other is um, how our biology affects how much weight we can really realistically lose over time. And what we know is that with rigorous scientific studies and randomized controlled trials of kind of the conventional weight loss treatment interventions that we have, that the vast majority of people can lose about 10% of their body weight and keep that off. Um, However, losing more body weight than that is something that we don't see occurring. We all know people who have lost much more than 10% of their body weight. But um, the vast majority of people regain that weight within one to five years of time. And this evidence is so strong that it has really prompted agreement among a number of expert panels and scientific groups like the Institute of Medicine and the World Health um, Organization um, to really recommend that as healthcare providers, um, we can't expect our patients to lose really more than 10% of their weight with conventional treatment options. Let, let me question that, I mean, because the key word from what I just heard you say is that we cannot expect them to lose more than 10% of their weight with conventional treatment options. But instead of, therefore, saying that the, the patients cannot lose more than 10% of their weight, isn't the onus upon us to be looking at these, quote, conventional treatment options and saying that they're inadequate and that we need to come up with options which are adequate? So absolutely. That people, yes. Absolutely. So there's, here, something, you know, there's something seriously wrong with the conventional treatment options if people can only lose 10%. Well, part of it is the treatment option and part of it are the limits of human biology. So, you know, our bodies are programmed to gain weight very easily. And, and this was very adaptive in times of famine. It meant that people would survive. Those genes are still the same, but we no longer live in an environment of famine. We live in an environment of abundance. And, and our bodies can still gain that weight very easily, but it's very difficult once that weight is gained to be able to lose it and keep it off. So part of it is... Why is that, Rebecca? Why is, why is it difficult to lose it? I mean, isn't it all a relationship of calories burned and calories ingested? Well, I think very simplistically that's what people like to think about. But when we look at how weight gain affects the biology and the number of fat cells stored in the body, that actually leads to a much more um, complex issue. But I do want to say that you're absolutely right that part of this equation is the fact that 
we can't point fingers at individuals and say, well, you're just not trying hard enough in these treatment efforts. But the fact of the matter is we don't have effective treatment options. And we need to make sure that we have the funding available in, in this country to find more effective solutions. Rebecca, you and I know that if you take a person, no matter how much they weigh, and put them on a caloric intake of between 1,500 and 1,750 calories, almost no matter what height they are, they're going to burn fat. Absolutely. Correct? Absolutely. So we, we, since we do know that, what is stopping us on a statewide or a national basis from getting that information out or making it more convenient or making it more possible for people who, who sign on for that to, to stay within those limits so that they burn it off? Well, I think, again, the question is, what is sustainable over time? And, and that's a big difference, is that many people do have this information. Many people um, are educated about this. But um, the reality is that even with that information, even if they are able to lose that weight, being able to sustain that amount of weight loss over time is what looks like is not feasible. Um, what we also know is that, you know, educating people about um, healthy nutrition and physical activity, um, you know, this is an approach that a lot of people think is what we need to be doing. We just need to keep educating people. And, you know, frankly, this is something that, an approach that we've been taking for a long time, and it's really not working. And it's not working because if we give the people the information, but we don't change the environment, we don't change the societal conditions that are creating obesity, then it's very difficult to see the kind of change that we want to see. Understood. Please tell us some of these societal conditions that are putting, if you will, peer pressure or pressure on people to avoid or ignore the 15 to 1,750 calorie ingestion, and to go ahead and maintain. What are some of these conditions that are pressuring? Well, you know, some of the things that I was saying before, which even comes down to the economics and pricing of foods, which we've set up to really promote unhealthy foods and unhealthy food consumption and make it much more difficult for individuals to eat healthy. And we can look around the country and see so many examples of food deserts where people don't even live near a grocery store to get produce, but they live near many 7-Elevens that offer them unhealthy foods at a very affordable prices. Um, we also need to look at the societal conditions created by the food industry, which, you know, targets um, consumers with their unhealthy products. Why? You know, Why are they doing this, Rebecca? Why are they targeting consumers with unhealthy products where they could just as well be targeting and making plenty of money selling healthy products? Do, you, do we have an understanding of why they're doing this? Well, again, you know, we're, we're dealing with what is the responsibility of these corporations. Is it public health, which most of us want it to be, or is it really this other bottom line of, of being um, lucrative? And, you know, right now we really don't see ma many examples of the industry um, taking these more socially responsible approaches. Uh, we see some small changes occurring, but really not on the scale that we need to see in order to affect public health. And so, you know, the industry is a, is a big barrier here, and it, it's also an, uh, an obstacle when we think about policy changes, because when we try to do things like let's say, implement a tax on uh, sugar-sweetened beverages. Uh, we see lots of lobbying occurring from the food industry and the beverage industry to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, and so, you know, there, there is a lot of, uh, there are a lot of challenges with this and trying to really change our society to make it easier for people to be healthy.
So what you're saying, if I understand you, is there's a kind of abdication of personal responsibility on the part of the producers of these calorie-intense, low-nutrition products. Absolutely. And very little, if anything, is being done about it so that they are, if you will, they're, they're hardly different than, than, the, than the, the pushers of drugs who sell to my drug-addicted patients. Well, you know, there have been a lot of parallels made between the tobacco industry and the food industry, and um, many of the same actions that we saw with tobacco are happening with obesity as well. And so, yes, um, that, that's correct. I remember only too well the CEOs of the three major tobacco uh, producers standing in front of Congress and raising their hands and swearing that their products are non-addictive. That's exactly right. And, you know, this is an area right now that is emerging in the field of obesity with um, more research now looking at potentially different types of food substances that may be addictive, like sugar, which look to, to, are starting to suggest that may, they may have the same kind of impact on the brain as other forms of drugs. Yes, there's more and more information coming down the pike on that, isn't there? Yeah. Well, let's get back. Well, no, before we get back to the, to the stigmatization I have another question. Is, 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 are there any groups, as far as you know, any scientific groups in this country looking at what this epidemic is saying? Is, is it saying something to us? I mean, is there a message here that is deeper than the actual obesity and overweight? I mean, when you have this many people, two-thirds of a population who are suffering from one particular thing, and it is this, in this case, it's obesity. I mean, if it, was one, if it was the common cold, it would be saying something. If it was alcoholism, if we had two-thirds suffering from it. We have two-thirds suffering from overweight and obesity. Are there any groups looking at what you might call the spiritual message? I mean, is there an underlying message, or is this too airy-fairy a question to be asking? Well, you know, I think there are certainly multiple groups who are trying to understand this issue from very different perspectives. I mean, besides, you know, basic scientists studying this issue, there are economists, psychologists, um, anthropologists studying this issue. And I think the common denominator when we look at all of this is what has changed is our culture and our society. You know, individuals who move to North America from other countries that have low obesity rates become obese very quickly once they move here. And so I think it is certainly a signal that there is something very wrong in the way that we have structured our society to promote um, ill health, really, to, to promote illness. I, I was, had occasion to bump into a young couple from, uh, from Denmark uh, just over this past weekend, and we started chatting. And one of the questions they asked me, which I couldn't answer, and they looked at me for just very naively and honestly, and they said, what has happened to your country? And I, and I just looked at them, and they said, what is, they looked at me, they said, what has happened to your country? We don't understand it over there. We, we, we always look to you as being a republic and a democracy, and we don't think of you as being that anymore. And when I, when, as I, after I left them and I was thinking, and I'm, of course this, this obesity uh, and, and, and uh, overweight uh, epidemic is on my mind, but so was this interview, and I started wondering about the connection between this question that these two people from Denmark asked me about what's happened to our country, and whether a possible connection between that and this obesity epidemic, whether the two might be connected in some way. 
What has happened to our country? What has happened to our people? Mm-hmm. Let's get back to the stigmatization. You, what about, you, you mentioned in one of your articles that health professionals themselves have a, have a, a negative attitude towards obese and overweight people. Please tell us about that. Well, one of the things that I think is important to recognize is, is that really no one is immune to the negative attitudes that we see throughout our society um, towards people who are obese. And the same, unfortunately, is true in the healthcare setting. There are numerous studies that ask healthcare providers how they feel about their obese patients and what their attitudes are. And again, we see the very same stereotypes emerging, beliefs that their obese patients are just lazy, they're not trying hard enough, they lack discipline and willpower. We, we also see that the heavier a patient is, the less respect that a provider reports having for that patient. Like a medical doctor. Absolutely. Medi- and, this, and what we see is that these attitudes are the same across disciplines in healthcare. So whether we're talking about physicians, nurses, dietitians, medical residents. Have negative uh, attitudes towards their patients who are overweight and obese. Correct. And we see that um, playing out in different ways. Um, we, we certainly see it in the patient-provider interactions. We see it in how much time is spent with patients. And unfortunately, patients are very aware of this. And, and in fact, when they perceive these, these kinds of experiences and, and feel stigma in the healthcare environment, they are more likely to avoid future healthcare services because they want to avoid the stigma. And we know that that is uh, very concerning, especially given the, the many comorbidities that are associated with obesity. So stigma um, in the healthcare environment may actually be making the problem worse and leading to avoidance of healthcare utilization. Wow. You're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Our guest today is Dr. Rebecca Poole. She's Director of Research and Weight Stigma Initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. She's telling us now about stigmas, which are so large, no pun intended, against those who are overweight and obese, that medical professionals themselves have a stigma against their own patients, which leads to the patients avoiding health care because they don't want to feel this stigma. She has told us earlier in the program about prejudice against employees, both when getting hired and while they're on the job advancing, and also prejudices which cause their salaries to be less than the salaries of others. I'd like you to just, we're going to take a sidebar here for a second, Rebecca, and I'm going to ask you about your study, the impact of weight stigma on caloric consumption, indicating that those who are stigmatized against eat even more. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, what we've started to observe is that when people are exposed to weight stigma or feel that they have been shamed or stigmatized because of their weight, that they actually engage in unhealthy eating behaviors and increased calorie consumption. And why that is so important is that there, there tends to be this public perception that, you know, maybe weight, weight stigma is not such a bad thing. Maybe it will motivate people to engage in weight loss. Maybe it will provide an incentive for people to become healthier. But what we're observing in our studies and, and studies of others is that, in, in actual fact, the opposite is, is occurring. 
occurring, that for both children and adults, when they are stigmatized or shamed or teased about their weight, they're actually more likely to engage in unhealthy eating behaviors. They're more likely to engage in binge eating. They have higher calorie consumption, and they're more likely to avoid physical activity. And, and what we know is that all of these things can actually reinforce weight gain and, and really impair weight loss efforts. And, and so the point to make here and to highlight is that that stigma actually makes this problem worse. Um, you know, as a psychologist who has treated many individuals who are struggling with their weight, um, I have never observed stigma or shame to be an effective motivator for behavior change. But what we're seeing here in the science is that it's actually um, impairing those efforts. It's actually making the problem worse. As one psychologist to another, don't we know that if our anxiety level is increased and food happens to be one of the things that we use to lower our anxiety, that if we're made fun of, we're going to go to our drug of choice, which is food. And that's, that's basically exactly what you're right. saying here, isn't it? That's exactly right. And, and, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. We, we did some other research where we surveyed well, over 2,400 overweight and obese women, and we asked them about their experiences of stigma and how they cope with stigma. And what we found is that 79% reported that they cope with stigma by eating more food. And you're absolutely right that when we look at the research on stress and eating, we know that many people cope with stress um, by using food. It's a temporary coping mechanism. It's a soothing coping mechanism. And for people who are experiencing weight stigma, this is a, a form of stress that is often chronic. They, this is a stressor that they experience often daily. And so it's not surprising that, that we see people turning to food to try to cope with this stress. If you're overweight, if I'm overweight or if I'm obese, I'm overweight or obese 24 hours a day. If I'm in an anxious state as a result of being overweight or obese, either because of my own self-perception and how I feel about being overweight or obese, or if you and the society make fun of me, then what's going to happen is my anxiety goes up, and what am I going to do? I'm going to reach for my drug of choice, which happens to be food, because it's the most legal and easily available drug that I can use. That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things to, to highlight here as well is, is the emotional toll that stigma takes on individuals, both children and adults. And the psychological consequences of being stigmatized because of one's weight are, are really very damaging. We see increased uh, depression, anxiety, lower self-esteem, um, poor body image, and really of concern as we see higher suicidal behaviors as well, um, especially among children and youth um, who, if they are overweight and being teased, are two to three times more likely to be engaging in suicidal thoughts and behaviors compared to their you know, overweight peers who aren't being teased. And we've seen examples of this, unfortunately, uh, emerge in the past couple of years in the media where these kids are taking their lives because of the devastation of being bullied about their weight. Talk to us about how the media are promoting the stigmatization of people suffering from overweight and obese. Obesity. Well, the media is a very prevalent source of bias, and we see this in multiple forms of media. So we see it in television, we see it in films, where overweight and obese characters are very often depicted in stereotypical roles, where they are the targets of ridicule and humor. They engage in very stereotypical behaviors like overeating, junk food. Um, but we also see this um, in our news media as well, and we've done some research looking at this and looking at how 
um, obese individuals are portrayed in, in news reports about obesity. And again, we see very stereotypical portrayals and images of obese individuals that are degrading and that reinforce these, these same stereotypes. Um, and, you know, when we consider how much media we consume as a culture, um, when these are the kinds of messages that we're seeing, it's not surprising that we see weight bias. And in fact, among kids, when kids are exposed to the media, um, and in these forms, we see higher levels of weight bias with higher exposure to media. So we do need to really think about what what portrayals of obese individuals in the media are, are communicating to us and to start to challenge uh, some of those messages. If you're wanting to call in with a question or a comment for Dr. Poole or myself, the telephone number here is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707 707- Nine three seven five one zero three. Please feel free. You'll be most welcome if you call in. Rebecca is obesity. <laughs> no sooner did I said that that the phone started to ring. All right, I'll take the call since I invited the call. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. Good morning. I would like to ask your guest for any thoughts and comments she has about a, a situation that I find fascinating. And it's related to the topic of discussion and the title of your show, which includes politics. And the situation is that um, there is a uh, debate underway, discussion underway, in the political venue in the city of Ukiah about whether or not to allow a store in town, a Walmart, to expand to a super center to sell groceries. And when the public comment is taken on this, it is a overwhelmingly obvious observation that a great number of the people speaking on behalf of the uh, the expansion and for cheaper food and this kind of thing are you know hugely large obese people, and it's embarrassing. I feel like I'm watching people lobby against their own interests or something, but but it is, you can't miss it. And I thought I'd just ask if she has any comments about this, because it, it really makes me wonder about the, you know, the thought process or the socioeconomic aspect or the hiring process or something. Many of these people are employees, by the way. I I should mention that. Okay, I understand Uh, the question. I mean, isn't this sort of like a bunch of alcoholics getting together and saying, we want more uh, stores that... We had to get that off the line, Michael. It was too staticky. Like, would this be similar to a group of alcoholics getting banding together and saying, we want more bars in town or something like that? What's your your comment on that, Rebecca? Well, I think one of the important points to highlight here, which, which he just mentioned, is the socioeconomic um, issue. And what we know is that uh, rates of obesity are higher among lower socioeconomic groups. Um, and is, so, of course, yes, we is would that want to... Is that, that's for sure. And so we would want to... You know, it's not surprising that, that people, you know, are, are certainly needing um, healthy options that are, uh, are cheaper. Um, I think the other question is, is trying to find ways for... Um, for foods that are both good in value to be good in quality. 
Um, and I do know that there are some um, corporations like Walmart who are taking initiatives to try to improve the health and quality of, of the food that they're offering. But, you know, I think this also speaks to the importance of why we need policies to ensure that individuals do have access to healthy food options and not just unhealthy food options. Rebecca, do you have evidence that there's a direct relationship between socioeconomic status and uh, overweight and obesity? Yeah, there are, there are a number of studies that have looked at this and also looked at this in different racial groups. And, you know, essentially what we know is that obesity occurs at every socioeconomic level and also among all races, but that there are groups that are, are more vulnerable, just as you would expect. But it is an equal opportunity employer, so to speak. Um, is there a relationship? Would you, would you say that alcoholism and obesity are sister and brother or cousins? How, would you, how do you see that as an addiction specialist? Well, uh, uh, given that I'm not an addiction specialist... Oh, excuse um, me. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. You know how many parallels there are. I certainly think there are some. But you know, one of the differences when we talk about substances like alcohol or tobacco or drugs is that um, you know a body does not need those substances to survive. Whereas with food, it's a very different picture, and it's a much more complex picture um, in, in those ways. Yeah, point well taken. The, the common theme for me is that both of them are used to change the emotional state. That we're a culture that has been taught that when we have something that's bothering us inside, we've been taught to look for something outside to, to do something about our internal state, be it eat something, take something in from outside, or maybe look outside for some answers. Whereas if the emotional state is inside, uh, from my perspective, where we have to go to do something about the emotional state is inside. But, uh, and so food is taking something in from outside. But excuse me, for uh, somebody's trying to get through here, so I'm going to take the call, Rebecca. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Uh, interesting show. Thank you. A uh, couple of points. Um, one, when you were talking about uh, health professionals uh, treating ob- overweight or obese people, uh, poorly or differently or whatever. With stigma is what Rebecca stigma, was saying. Stigma, thank you. You're welcome. Um, anyway, um, I have experienced also the opposite. I'm uh, really thin, in fact, excessively thin after some uh, injury and chronic illness. And I was treated with stigma like, how dare you think there's anything wrong with you because you look thin and fine to me. Anyway, that was one little point. And then, um, and then uh, my addiction is smoking, and one of the things that concerns me about taking a, uh, a policy approach or any kind of political or legal approach is, you know, there's all of this stuff about smoking, but I can't get help to quit smoking, you know, to get into a, you know, and this brings me to the other point. So I feel like I would need a residential program with a lot, you know, it's like I would need some, some active therapy to express myself in, in, a, in a better way because part of it is it's, 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 and this is probably true with overeating too, uh, it's stuffing yourself. It's instead of expressing yourself in a way that may be deemed uh, unacceptable, you stuff something in there to shut yourself up and to try and numb uh, the thing. And then, and, and anyway, and the cheapest, I've researched this, the cheapest residential non-quit smoking program is like close to $3,000. Uh, 
and all this money gets spent about, you know, uh, to supposedly stop people from smoking or whatever, and I don't think the tobacco companies are paying for it, and yet, what, if you're rich, you can afford to quit smoking? And that thing about bringing something in from outside of you when you have a problem, I think there's a genuine reason for that, and that's because we're human beings, we're relational, and we're social. It's mostly about how we treat each other. And if we treat... Thank you. That's an interesting comment. Do you, what do you have to say about that, Rebecca? Um, a couple of responses. Um, I think, first of all, um, she brought up a very good point, which is that uh, weight stigma affects people of, of many different body weights, not just individuals who are obese. Um, you know, our, our research focuses on, on obesity stigma, but there absolutely is a stigma for individuals who are underweight as well. Um, it involves kind of a different set of stereotypes, um, and the stigma, I think, in, in a number of ways is different, but it's certainly there, and so that was a very good point. Um, I also agree with her that, that treatment is expensive, regardless of whether we're talking about smoking or obesity. And, and that's one of the challenges that we see right now is that there are a lot of obesity scientists, obesity professionals, organizations who are really trying to lobby um, and get support and funding for treatment because it is so expensive. And I think that's also one of the reasons that we see so many efforts right now becoming invested in prevention um, and trying to prevent um, the conditions that create obesity in the first place because long range, that's much more cost effective. Um, and, and so, you know, there are these challenges, absolute legitimate challenges related to, to the cost of these things. Um, are any of the programs any good? Well, that kind of goes back to the, <laughs> the issue we were talking about before, which is, <laughs> you know, with the conventional treatment options that we have, we don't see the kinds of success that most people want to have. Which is to lose the weight and keep it off. Correct. I wonder what differentiates us. That would be an interesting study. I don't know if anyone's done it. Perhaps you can tell us if you're familiar with, with one. What differentiates those of us who have been able, like Mike and myself, to lose 50% of our body weight and maintain the, the loss over decades uh, from those who can hardly lose 10% and when they do, they don't, you know, they don't keep it off? What, what are the differentiating factors here? Well, a lot of people would love to know the specific answer to that question. Uh -huh. and, and I think that it's, it's very complex. You know, some studies show that it's about the kinds of resources that people have for things like support and therapy to help get through those issues. Other, other studies look at resources uh, related to food access, um, individuals. Um, it can also be related to um, genetics and biology of certain individuals. You know, there are really, just as, as much as, as there are complex causes of obesity, we also see that there are many, many variables that come into play when we look at who is able to be in that minority of individuals who can keep it off. I can tell you, Rebecca, that it's been 50 years since that time when I was 50% uh, overweight, literally 50 years. And to this day, uh, it's something I deal with almost every day of my life. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it doesn't go away, <laughs> but it's, uh, it keeps me on my toes. And the most important question I ask myself on a daily basis when I pass the refrigerator or I pass a bakery or I pass some place and I feel this, this pull to go in, and the question I ask myself is, what is it that's going on inside of me that I'm wanting to take that food in to deal with? And is there another way of dealing with what's going on inside of me other than taking that substance in? That's one of the most powerful tools that I've been able to use. I think that is a powerful tool. And I think that, you know, when we look at what, 
we see in the media, for example, about the different roles and purposes that food is supposed to serve, we certainly see um, examples of people using food to deal with negative emotions, but we're, we're also encouraged very frequently by industry, by um, different food companies, to use food to celebrate positive emotions. You know, it's not just it's not just negative, but it's also positive. It's the celebrations after, you know, the job promotion or the kids' soccer game win, championship game, or you know, there's so many examples where food has become kind of this this product, this thing to use in response to to all emotions. Yes, to celebration, similar to my alcoholic patients. You know, when there's a big celebration, they want a bottle of champagne, but they're alcoholics right. and they can't have it. Sort of reminded of this uh, this uh, uh, professional baseball pitcher I treated one time, and he said, well, when he lost a game, he'd be so upset, he'd go out and get some cocaine because he was so depressed. But when he won a game, he wanted to go out and get some cocaine so he could celebrate. So he, that's right. what you're saying with the food as well, aren't you? It is. And, and, you know, this is what our society, what our culture with the media is communicating. It's saying that this is a normal thing to do. Yeah. When we really look at it, you know, I think one of the points that was raised by the previous caller is that as, as humans, we are by nature relational and social. And it's, it's looking to find ways to change our society so that the focus becomes on those relationships to, to help us through those situations rather than these food products. Yes, on the relationships. Talking about a relationship, Here's we're going to have a relationship with a listener. Please put him on, Michael. Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. I, I think we need to reverse it now. We need to stigmatize the professionals and the government <clears throat> for not helping us deal with this and uh, for not uh, being creative enough. Uh, children are trapped in schools all day long. Uh, 12 hours a day, people are trapped at their offices uh, for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Uh, there is research now that it's not about time management, it's about energy management. And people don't get <clears throat> an opportunity to leave at 10 uh, and go run uh, for a while or go relax for a while. Uh, they, they have to stay at their job. They have to stay uh, uh, at their computer um, for a break, for lunch. Uh, some people spend dinner time there. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we know all the answers. I mean, you, you talk about things this, that we this already is a, know. This is a policy question that you're raising for Rebecca, and let's see what she has to say for it. She, uh, this is a policy issue, isn't it, that she's raising? Yeah, it it is, very broadly speaking. And and I I think that you're right, that in order to really see major changes here, we need significant shifts in the way that our society is structured right now. And, and, you know, we can look to other cultures outside of the United States who don't kind of have this, um, you know, live-to-work policy or or cultural foundation. And and we see people who are healthier, who, who are taking time and who have more balance. And I think that's certainly part of this equation as well. Say something more about this live to work. That caught my attention when you said that, Rebecca, please. Well, you know, we, we are in a culture um, where we have uh, very few days off uh, from work compared to other cultures um, where we, you know, have this very long work day. There are no breaks in, in, in comparison to other cultures. And, you know, that takes a toll on health as well. And, and so I think 
you know, it, it, we just need to recognize, you know, not just always focusing on what, what we're doing in our own society, but looking to other groups and other cultures and other societies to see what are they doing well that, that we can try here or that we should be doing differently. And I think that we have a lot to learn. You know, we are a country with more resources than anyone else, and yet um, we have significant problems, and we have the resources to be addressing this, um, and we're not. Um, and so I think there's a lot to learn from others. Good. Okay, let's take that call, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I wanted to give some hope to some people. After 10 years, I've managed to keep off the extra 60 pounds I gained. Oh, good for you. And I'm here to reinforce uh, what you eat and keep on moving. I mean, that's essential. And the last caller's right. We're not structured as a society in this country to support people who do want to exercise on a regular basis. It's kind of a cult thing when people get involved in gyms and so forth, in my observation. But what I wanted to say was um, I was very impressed by Gaber Mate's book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And I think there's a lot of shame and, and stigma involved in obesity as well as other, you know, alcoholism, other addictions. But really, we're all addicts. We're, we're on this path as a civilization that hasn't really addressed those underlying issues. It is within. It's finding that peace with less, you know, not wanting more out of everything, you know, more things, more food, more of everything. We're encouraged. And it's not a healthy thing for anybody or the planet. Thank you. What do you say to that, Rebecca? I think that's a a good point. And, I mean, she's really highlighting the issue of consumerism and whether we're consuming food or we're consuming other products, um, you know, is is a very valid point. We have a little time left, and I'd like you to please talk a bit about uh, obesity, overweight, and self-esteem. Well, we certainly see that the shame and stigma that are so prevalent and are experienced by individuals uh, really lower self-esteem, both in children and adults. Um, and uh, as you and I both know as, as healthcare professionals, that um, you know, low self-esteem is a real barrier to, to health behavior. Um, and so this is a very legitimate issue that I think needs to be part of um, any discussion about stigma as well as any discussion about treatment. Rebecca, what uh, what got you involved with uh, this whole area of uh, obesity and uh, overweight and uh, bulimia? In other words, the the eating disorders. How did you uh, How did you get involved with that yourself? Well, as a graduate student, I came to graduate school at Yale thinking that I was going to become a clinical psychologist treating eating disorders, and I, I certainly started off in that direction. Um, but part of the way through my graduate school training. Um, I had the opportunity to do some research on stigma related to obesity. And I was just um, really shocked and saddened to see how prevalent it was and how how much of it was going on and yet um, really how little was being done about it. And and so it's really become the focus of, of my career as a, as a scientist to to understand stigma and to try to find ways to reduce this form of prejudice so that we can really improve the quality of life for so many people who are affected by obesity. I'm told that at the rate this epidemic is growing, by the year 2030, 87% of the United States will be obese or overweight. Have you seen that, that data? I've certainly heard similar statistics. If if we get there, I mean, we're already at two-thirds. We get to the point of 87%. Uh, 
Are we going to see those who are overweight and obese prejudice against those who are thin? Are we going to have a reversal? I mean, is the majority going to take over? Well, you know what's interesting is that as obesity rates have increased um, over the past several decades, weight bias has actually become worse and not better. And one would think that, you know, as we see increasing rates of obesity, that there would be more tolerance because more people are obese. And we're seeing that the opposite is true. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. We see, you know, some of the things we've talked about already, how the media portrays individuals, um, the way that we approach obesity is very focused on blame and personal responsibility. But one of the things is also that we, we actually observe weight bias among people who are obese as well. They don't have as high levels of weight bias as we see among individuals who are not obese, but we do see some of it there. And In other words, know, the obese and overweight you're seeing are prejudice against others or themselves who are obese or overweight. That's what you're in saying. In some cases, yes. And, and, and what, we, what we believe and what we've studied is that there's a lot of internalization of stigma that occurs because there is really no one challenging this form of stigma. And, it, and it's kind of like that idea that when you've been told that you're bad by enough people, you start to believe it. And, and we see that happening. And we see when people internalize stigma and blame themselves, it leads to many of the negative consequences that we've talked about already related to eating more food and being depressed and things like that. So internalization is a big part of this as well. And I think what we really need are, are people speaking out about this, people challenging the stigma, um, so that there are voices of support as well as um, you know, people who can really be there. So if you're listening to this program and you're overweight and or obese, what should you do? Well, it really depends on where the stigma is coming from. I think the first the first issue is regardless of what setting it is, is to find someone who you can use for support. Um, you know, if this is something that's happening in the healthcare environment, we usually recommend that people talk to a patient advocate or write down their concerns, and if they feel comfortable talking to their provider, talk to their provider. Um, you know, it really depends on the setting. I think... The more that people can um, talk about their experiences, um, the more that this will come to light and that we can have a, a real discussion about what we can do to change it. And if they're listening, one very succinctly, is there hope for them if they're overweight and obese, or do they need to throw in the sponge and say they're never going to lose the weight and they better just make peace with it in some way? Oh, there's always hope. And I think one of the important things to focus on is how to improve health behavior regardless of what the number on the scale is. I got to interrupt you. I'm very sorry. I'm getting signals here. Rebecca, we just ran out of time. Okay. I'm so sorry. But I want to thank you so much for being on the program. It's been tremendously educational. Thanks very much. I hope you'll come back sometime in the future. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock California time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm